Isaiah 5, we're going to start in verse 8. It's on page 520 in a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 5 and 8. Woe to those who attach house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. And you alone are a landowner in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of armies has sworn many houses shall certainly become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants for 10 acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine and a homer of seed will yield only one ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning so they may pursue intoxicating drink who stay up late in the evening so that wine may inflame them their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their nobles are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth beyond measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her noise of revelry, the jubilant within her, descend into it. So the common people will be humbled and the person of importance brought low. The eyes of the haughty will also be brought low. But the Lord of armies will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Then the lambs will graze in their pastures and strangers will eat the ruins of the wealthy. Woe to those who drag wrongdoings with cords of deceit as if as sin and sin as if with cart ropes who say, let him hurry, let him do his work quickly so that we may see it and let the plan of the Holy One of Israel approach and come to pass so that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those or who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and in mixing intoxicating drink who declare the wicked innocent for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, as dry grass collapses in the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of armies and discarded the word of the Holy One of Israel for this reason. The anger of the Lord has burned against his people and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. Despite all this, his anger is not spent and his hand is still stretched out. He will also lift up a flag to the distant nation and whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it's tired, no one in it is tired or stumbles, no one slumbers or sleeps, nor is the undergarment at his waist loosened, nor his sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and its bows are bent. The hoofs of his horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a storm wind. Its roaring is like lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to save it and will roar against it on that day. Like the roaring of the sea, if one looks across the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even light is darkened by its clouds. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your word, the guidance we receive from it. We pray tonight for your Holy Spirit to come, for him to reveal to us the deep things of God from this. For him to stir our hearts by what we see and what we learn in this. For him to take your word and to stir greater faith and greater love for you and greater devotion to you. And your word and what we study tonight. Oh God, help us to understand what we study and what we look at. Help us to understand what you're saying in this passage. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. So that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Use this time tonight to challenge us, to change us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. Just make us more and more like Jesus. Until we better reflect him before the world around us. Father, I still believe and what we see in the book of John is true today. The people who said, we want to see Jesus. Father, the world around us is desperate for something real. To see something in us that is 
different from the world around us. Help us to live that out. Let your spirit and your word work together. Sanctify us, complete us, make us more of who you want us to be. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, there are two key words in this passage in Isaiah 5. First is woe. Woe is a word of prophetic judgment and prophetic lament. Woe, if we were to turn to Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26, we would see it as the opposite of blessed. Where blessed expresses happiness and joy, woe expresses a, a, a seriousness and sorrow. Woe as a prophetic judgment means beware. Judgment is about to fall upon you because of your sin. Woe as a prophetic lament grieves the coming judgment and the sin that has brought it to pass. Woe is used six times in this section. These six woes not only declare the corruption of the people, but the soon coming judgment of Almighty God. The other key word is therefore. The sins Isaiah is denouncing and lamenting have gone on so long. Judgment is coming upon the people. The judgment that's coming is is not going to be a tragedy, right? Not a tragedy in that, gosh, what bad luck they have. Not a tragedy in, well, you live in a fallen, sin-cursed world and sometimes bad things just happen. No, these things are going to be sent by God as a direct consequence of their continued rebellion against Him. Now, I want us to look tonight at the, the woes that Isaiah pronounces and the actions associated with them. The first woe is a woe against reckless greed. Woe to those who attach house to house and join field to field till there is no more room and you alone are the landowner in the midst of the land. The wording here pictures what you might call maybe a land baron. They're buying up all the property so they are the only ones who own any land and they're the only ones who basically have anything. And what this brought to my mind was like the movie The Westerns. I've seen in Westerns before where there would be a, a range war and two ranches that bordered one another would be in a, in a battle to do things so that because both wanted all the land and all the water and all the things. Uh, and that's what we see going on here. The picture here is of wealthy people using their wealth and their affluence and their influence to push out anyone else that has what they want. The goal of this is so that they can own all the land and they can have everything in this. Most commentaries agree with this picture and suggest those who were rich were ruthlessly taking over the property of the poor, the needy, and those with less influence and power. And so God, through Isaiah, says woe to those whose lives are controlled by this sort of reckless greed. The second woe is on drunken debauchery. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning so that they may seek to pursue intoxicating drink, who stay up late in the evening so that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and by wine. The picture here is people given to every sort of sensual pleasure and excess. The wording of rising early and staying up later describes them giving themselves totally to this sort of drunken, debauchery-filled lifestyle. What they're living for is the next big party. That's their focus of their life. They wake up looking for the opportunity. They stay up late searching it out. That's all that the, is the focus of what they want to do in their lives. And God, through Isaiah, says woe to those who live in drunken debauchery. Woe number three is on those who are self-deceived slaves of sin and who mock God. Now this one... I found interesting. Look at verse 18. Woe to those who drag wrongdoings with the cords of deceit as if with cart ropes. They, they drag along their wrongdoing or their sin with cords of deceit. Now, the idea of cords, holding on to their sin with cords, it harkens back to Proverbs 5.22. And in Proverbs 5.22, we're told wrongdoing traps the wicked and they're held by the cords of their own sin. Now, the lesson in Proverbs 5.22 is while sin promises freedom, what it actually delivers is slavery. Right? And this is the picture here. These people are slaves to their sin. 
And the cords are holding them, but here it calls them cords of deceit. And these people are slaves of their sin, but they have convinced themselves through self-deception that they are free from the bondage of religion. Right? No matter how hard sin makes their lives, no matter how many times uh, sin blows up their lives, they're like people who just look around and think everything's fine. This is fine. Everything is, is fine. It's all okay just the way it is. Despite the fact of what sin is, is doing to them, or the way it is hindering them, they are enslaved. And I think the idea of as if with cart ropes, it, it pictures it's making their lives hard. Right? Their, their sin is like pulling a weight. It's like they're having to, they're slaves to this. They're pulling this weight. It's making their lives hard, but they have deceived themselves into thinking it's okay. And as they continue to live enslaved to their sins, convincing themselves they're living their best life now, they mock God. Right. Let him that's talking about God, let God hurry and do his work quickly so that we may see it and let the plan of the Holy One of Israel approach and come to pass so that we may know it. So as they're enslaved by their sin, convincing themselves of living their best life now, they mock God, they question God, they challenge God and they out and out defy God. And to me. I think their mocking, questioning, and challenging and defying God is in response to someone trying to correct them about the sin enslaving their lives. That's so picture someone you can see that they're destroying their lives through their sin. And if you talk to them about it and you say, look, look at what's going on. Look at what your sin is doing. God says like, oh, really? Why, why isn't God doing anything? Why isn't God? Where is God? What is he doing in my life? Right, that sort of harsh mocking against God as they live in this sin. God says through Isaiah, woe to those who mock him while enslaving themselves to sin. Woe number four, redefining truth. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, of course, Yahweh, God, Yahweh is the creator, redeemer, sustainer, and the one true God has the right to define what is true, what is good, and what is evil. Yahweh alone has the right to define what is true, what is good, and what is evil. But not only does he have the right, and he alone have the right, he has. Yahweh has defined in his word what is true. He has defined in his word what is good, and he has defined in his word what is evil. But the people don't like the way Yahweh has defined truth and good and evil. And so they seek to redefine it. They want to say what Yahweh said was true is actually false. They want to say what Yahweh said is good is actually evil. We see what Yahweh said is evil is actually good. And we see this every day in our culture. Our culture did not invent the mindset we see on the regular. It has been going on for, I guess, since the beginning of time, since man and, eat, man and woman sinned. People have been trying to redefine Good and evil redefine truth. And God through Isaiah says, woe to those who seek to redefine his truth. The fifth woe is on pride and arrogance. Hubris, maybe it would be better to say. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Clever in their own sight. Now the Israelites in Isaiah's day were somewhat impressed with themselves. They felt they were somewhat of an advanced culture who had grown in their knowledge far beyond anything Moses could have known when he initially wrote the law. They felt the law of Moses was fine for its time, but its time had passed. And the law wasn't fit for a culture as advanced as theirs was. And, and, and we see again in our day this idea of people being wise in their own eyes in this way. Things like intellectual achievement. Technological advancement and affluence tend to make peoples and cultures feel they're smarter than they actually are. 
certainly an enlightened and advanced and affluent culture, is smarter than those who lived thousands of years ago. Surely, what we have now, what we've learned now, what we've accomplished now, enables us to know better than those who lived thousands of years ago what would be proper moral commands for a a people and a society to live by. Surely people who live now and have accomplished what we've accomplished now have a better understanding of what's reasonable and what's real and what's not. And so you can't really believe supernatural occurrences as they occur in this book because stuff like that just can't happen. Surely people who live now and have accomplished what we have command, what we have accomplished, have a better understanding of maybe what salvation might be and how one would ascribe to salvation if such a thing existed. Surely we know better. I mean, that, that, again, that's that is our culture, which is why they try to redefine one of the reasons they try to redefine good and evil. We know better. Therefore, we can do what we want. We can change what we want. And God through Isaiah says, woe to those sorts of arrogant people. And then woe six. Woe to drunken, corrupt justice system. Now, I found the connection between being a hero at drinking, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine, valiant men and mixing intoxicating drink with the justice system. Interesting. Who declare the wicked innocent for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. One of my commentaries said the corrupt judges of Isaiah's day enjoyed living a lavish lifestyle. And their lavish lifestyle was seen. One of the ways their lavish lifestyle was seen is in the way they drank and in what they drank. And in order to fund their lavish lifestyle, they sold their judgments to the highest bidder. Now, this, of course, was contrary to what God said in the law. The law had said the judge of the justice system was essentially to be fair. You weren't to favor one group over another group. And of course, this is a kind of a, a fundamental function of any government is to assure equal justice for all. Neither the rich nor the poor are to get preferential treatment. But here in this day, the judges were somewhat in order to fund their somewhat lifestyle. They sold their judgments to who had the most money. And God says, through Isaiah, woe to these unjust judges. Now, these six woes are interesting because they touch on all of society. It's not just the rich. It's not just the poor. It's not just this group. It's not just that group. All of Israelite society at this point in Jerusalem and Judea had given themselves over to live in these ways in one way or another. God had sent prophets to them time and time again. And they had rejected the prophets. And they had rejected their message of repentance. Therefore, judgment was coming. Now, I'm not going to take time tonight to get into the judgments to come. You can read those on your own. Suffice to say, they are all bad. But what I want us to think about tonight is is, is two things, really, in in the last bit of time we have left. One, why they devolved into this. Right? How did a society... That again, remember that this was a a society that was supposed to be. These were God's people. How did a a religious society that was devoted to the right religion of the right God? How did they devolve into this kind of society where these woes would be pronounced upon them? And then secondly, what can we do to ensure we don't follow their mistake? So why did they do what they did? Why did they end up? In this place, I think as I studied this passage, something I had never seen before. Is that it seems reasonable to do these things because if you look at the end of verse 12. They do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. They they ignored the ways of God. Verse 13, it tells us that they were that they lack knowledge. Well, what knowledge did they lack? And if you look at verse 24, the end, for they have rejected the law, the Lord of armies, and discarded the word of the Holy One of Israel. They had rejected the word of God. They didn't know, therefore, the word of God. And so they ignored or didn't recognize the ways God was at work around them. 
trying to call them to repentance. This is what happened to the people of Isaiah's day. They first rejected the word of God. This caused them not to know the word of God. And then they didn't pay any attention to what God was doing as he sent prophets to call them to repentance. And the end result of this was the judgment of God falling upon them. So the warning, the warning for us, those who reject the word of God will ignore the ways of God and will one day face the judgment of God. Now, this is, I think, that is a a timeless principle from this passage. It's not, I mean, that's certainly what happened here. But it's not just what happened in here. If, If in our day, people reject the word of God, they're going to ignore the ways of God. He's trying to draw them to salvation through Christ. And as they ignore that, they will one day face the judgment of God. This is a timeless principle for all times. So what I want us to think about now is what do we do so that we don't fall into that pit? We don't make that mistake. And I think in part, we need to do the opposite of what they did. We need to receive this warning. Anyone who rejects the word of God will end up ignoring the ways of God and will one day face the judgments of God. And then do what they didn't do. Because of the woes they gave themselves over. You know, we look at the six woes. These are all common in our culture. They're as common in our day as they were in Isaiah's day. Reckless greed is a very real thing in our world. Drunken debauchery, probably all of us know at least a person who lives their life for the next big party that's coming up. Self-deceived slaves of sin. We we, we could probably have a, a list of people we pray for that fall into that category. That mock God. Yes. Redefining truth. That is everyday life in our culture right now. Pride and arrogance. The hubris. We know more than God. That, that is an argument we hear every single day in our world. Drunken corrupt justice system. I, I don't know. I don't know if the judges are drunk. But corrupt, the, the justice system at times certainly seems to be corrupt. Not, certainly not just. And so we see this. And we may look at this list of woes and it would be easy for us to say, well, I would never do that. And, and if you were to say that, I, I mean, I would believe you. I, I don't think any of us would intentionally do this, would set out and say, you know what, today I'm, I'm just going to give myself to reckless greed until the woe from the Lord falls upon me. I don't think that's what any of us would do. But I think in the, in the right set of circumstances, anybody could fall prey to To any temptation. That's what one of my pastors, Tim Landers, he used to say all the time. Under the right set of circumstances, anyone can fall prey to any temptation. Now, this wasn't just his idea. This was his paraphrase of God's word. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. Now, in the passage of 1 Corinthians 10, it's a warning about not thinking we're too strong, too mature, too spiritual To fall into some sort of sin. The pride that would say I would never. Is a pride that makes us in danger. Of actually doing that. The pride to say I I wouldn't do that under any circumstances. Is the pride that makes us susceptible to something. Think about Peter. Peter's a great example of this. Jesus tonight you're all going to deny me. Not me. All y'all might. Not me. What happened with his pride? He was brought low because he did exactly what he said he would never do. So what we have to do is we have to fight against these woes, giving in to them by doing the opposite of what they did. And we we have to devote ourselves to God's word. All of these issues in their life started with them abandoning, rejecting, discarding the word of God. And if we devote ourselves to to the word of God, we, we're very, 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 very unlikely to fall into these woes. Not, of course, none of us is perfect. We, we're going to trip and stumble. But there's a difference between stumbling and going in it for so long that the woes of the Lord fall upon us, right? We, we understand the difference between stumble and fall and just go headlong into it for significant periods of time. So I want to give us three ways 
to devote ourselves to God's word. Three ways that are not new or unique that we've heard before, but three ways that need to be repeated, I think, often. Devote ourselves to studying God's word. Now, they rejected God's word and didn't know God's words. The opposite of this for us is to study God's word so that we will know God's word. Devoting ourselves to studying God's word is something every disciple of Jesus is meant to do. The Apostle Paul wrote, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, there's a lot in that passage we don't have time to look at, but there's three facets I want us to understand. First, we're told to be diligent. Second, we're told to be workers, diligent workers. Or third, first be diligent, second be workers, third be diligent workers, and it's regarding God's word. You ever thought about studying the Bible as part of being a diligent worker at it? And yet that's what it says. The word diligent there, I could get into what the Greek means, but it means diligent, hard, put forth significant amount of effort. Why are we be diligent workers regarding God's word? So that we can accurately handle it. Right? So we can know what it means. We can know, right, when somebody comes and says, hey, you should give yourself to this sort of reckless greed, we can say, oh, the Bible has a lot to say about covetousness. I don't think I'm, I'm going to. And when they say, well, I don't know, what I'm talking about is not really covetousness like you're thinking. This is okay. We could accurately handle the word and say, I don't know. I'm pretty sure it is. Right? We, we have to actually know what God's word says in order to resist the pull of, of any temptation, but the six that we talked about tonight. Uh, this is more than just simply reading it. This is more than reading a devotion. This is more than listening to a sermon. This is consistently being in God's word, seeking to learn all we can from it, to, to mine it, to dig deep, to be sure we understand what it says. I, I really like the wording, right? Be diligent. Present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. Right? And so part of accurately handling is being able to explain it to others, apply it to ourselves and explain it to others. That that is a it's a lot of hard work on our part. It just it just is. Biblical knowledge or biblical understanding doesn't come on accident. And it doesn't typically come easily. It comes through our intentional effort to know and understand what God has revealed to us in his word. John Stott says it is made plain throughout God's word. The health of God's people depends on their attentiveness to his word. He also says a deaf church is a dead church. This is an unalterable principle. Now, the woes of Isaiah's day are are surely a part of what you might call the spirit of the age of our day. The only way to keep from getting caught up in the caught up in this is to be devoted to God's word. The main way, one of the main ways devotion to God's word is seen is through our studying it. At the same time, if we want to help people not be caught up in it, right? We have to be able to understand it so that we can explain it. And this, again, it goes back to digging into it. It goes back to studying it. I think part of not being ashamed and accurately handling it is if somebody were to say, are you saying this is a sin? You're saying this thing I think is good is evil. This thing I think is evil is good. Why? Where is that at? Being able then to open God's word and say it, it's right here is what God has said in his word. I've told this story before. At some point I'll probably quit telling it because everybody gets tired of hearing it. But I knew a guy once. He was a Jehovah's Witness. And when he came to America from some another country... He wanted to give himself to Christianity, to Jesus. He knew a little bit about it from where he was from, but not a whole lot. And he worked at the hospital with a whole bunch of people who went to church on a regular basis. And he asked them, why do you believe what you believe? And he asked them specifics. Why do you believe what you say about Jesus? He died for our sin, rose again. Why is he the only way? Why? And they began to ask these questions. And the Christians he worked with at the hospital could not turn to him. And point, this is why. That's what, that's what I've always believed. Well, where's it at in the Bible? 
Where's it at in here? And, and they couldn't show him in here. But then one day, a, a pair of Jehovah's Witnesses came to his door. And guess what they could do? They could open up the Bible and they could say, well, here it says this. And here's what we believe there. And, and here's what I believe here. And he was sold. Later, years later, when I tried to talk to him, and he, he, was, he was all in. And it was because those who were disciples of Jesus he was around had not been diligent to be workers. And I knew, I know at least one of the people who was there. And they are to this day ashamed that they could not give an answer to the questions he had. To know and to be able to answer requires us to be diligent to study God's Word. This is a part of what it means to be devoted to God's Word. Second, devote ourselves to believing God's Word. Knowing God's Word does not do us any good if we do not believe God's Word. I mentioned this quote Sunday, um, and I paraphrase it, but here's the exact quote I mentioned on Sunday. Well, I would say that if you don't believe Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and He rose again from the dead, and by His sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. That's an accu- that is a theologically accurate statement. could have been said by any conservative evangelical preacher in the world, but it was said by an atheist named Christopher Hitchens, who actually describes himself as an anti-theist. He knew enough of God, what God's Word said about Jesus to correctly articulate the necessity and the uniqueness of Jesus for salvation, but it did him no good because he didn't believe it was true. He knew what it said, but he didn't believe what it said. Intellectual knowledge of God's Word is not, and this may sound strange, but it's a fact, is not in the slightest bit useful to us if we don't believe it. Just knowing it does us no good if we don't believe it. Let, let me show you this. Hebrews 4.2 For indeed we have the good news preached to us just as they also did. But the word they heard did not benefit them because they were not united with those who listened with faith. Now this passage is in the context of a warning not to follow the example of the Israelites who didn't enter the promised land after being freed from Egyptian bondage. Remember the story. Moses led the Israelites to the Jordan River, sent out spies. They came back. Ten brought a bad report. Two brought a good report. They believed the, the bad report, and they were refusing to go in. God said, go in. They said, no, we're not. We're just going to die. We're going to pick out a new leader. We're going back to Egypt. And so God said, well, then you can't go in. You're just going to wander in the wilderness to all the adults die. Your kids are going to be the ones to go in. Now, here's how this relates to what we're talking about tonight. The truths of, of the warning here, what was said here. God had given them a land of their own. He had promised He would give it to them. They had held on to that promise for 400 years in slavery. God had promised them victory over their enemies. God had the power to give them the land and victory over their enemies. They knew that. right? They, they knew all those things to be true. They had been told the promise all of their lives. They had seen God and what He did over Egypt in delivering them out. They had had a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, manna raining down from heaven, a Red Sea parting. God's power was significantly more than anything they had ever seen or heard of before in their lives. They knew the truth. They knew what was right. But when it came right down to it, their knowledge of the truth did not do them any good because they did not believe it. And since they did not believe it, they did not enter the promised land. And they wandered in 40, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until the generation of adults died off. All of that happened, not because they didn't know, but because they did not believe. It is, again, we've talked about saying we should study God's Word and learn what God says about all of the issues of life we're going to face. But this knowledge will not do us any good unless we believe what we read. 
unless we believe what God has said. Now, believing God's word, there are two parts to it. One, we must believe God's word is right. This is this is critical. God's word is right. Now, the reason this is critical is because culture says something very different to what God's word says on on everything, on how to treat people, on salvation, on what it means to be holy, what it means to be devoted to God, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what God is like. How to be married, your sexual ethics, your there is there is I mean there is literally no area of life where the culture and the church or the gospel or the Bible are harmonious. They are without exception in contradiction to one another. Which one am I going to believe? Now. To believe God's word is right, I have to believe it's right, even if I don't like it. You know, there, there may well, again, that may sound unspiritual. I don't like it. But there are probably things that are true in here we may not like. I mean, I, I've mentioned, before, turn the other cheek. I, I, don't, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of doing good to those who hate me. And being kind to those who despitefully use me. I, I don't like that. That's not my natural inclination. But is it true? Is my like the determining nature of what's true? Or is God's word the determining nature of what's true? We have to say God's word is true even if I don't like it. God's word is true even if it goes against my natural inclinations. Well, I'm just wired that way. Listen. It doesn't matter. And I'm not arguing. You may well be wired a certain way to be mean, to be gossipy. I don't know. Whatever. Something that's that's not consistent with what we see here. And, and that may be true. But we're not called to live according to our natural inclinations and wiring. We're we're called to be born again, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to put off the old man and put on the new So it it doesn't matter what my natural inclinations are. I am not to live by those. My natural inclinations do not determine what's true. If I believe, if I'm going to be devoted to believing God's word, then God's word is true if it goes against my natural inclinations. God's word is true if it goes against what I've always been taught. Whether this is what we were taught as kids whether this goes against what we were taught in church, whether this goes against just what we overheard and understood. I can give you examples. One is from my life. I was, I was raised in a free will Baptist church. I don't remember. We went to a, I think like a missionary Baptist church when I was really, really little. I have like a small memory of that. But all of my formative years have been in free will Baptist churches. And growing up, I don't think I was ever taught this explicitly. But what I understood about the conditional nature of the security of salvation was that we walked along a tightrope, essentially over the mouth of hell. And and any wrong step just sent you spirally into hell. It was a, a terrifying thought. That every sin, everything, if we ever messed up, you went straight to hell. If you messed up and then you didn't have time to repent, you went to hell when you died. That's what I understood. That's what I felt I had been taught all of my life. As I got older and began to study the Word, turns out that's not what God's Word teaches at all. So what's true? What I had believed for 25 years and had been taught for 25 years or what was here or what's here. It has to be if I'm committed to God's word being true, then God's word is true, even if it's what goes against what I've always been taught. God's word is is right, regardless of what issue we're talking about, that that's. Ultimately, what it is to be devoted to believing God's word. Because our natural thinking is always in some ways going to be contrary to this. Because none of us are perfect yet. What we've been taught is at times going to be contrary to this. Because the people who've taught us 
aren't quite perfect yet. The culture is always going to be contrary to this because the culture is in rebellion against God. Our desires are going to at some ways, at some times, be contrary to this because we're not quite perfect yet. And if I'm not devoted to believing God's word is right in all things, regardless, I'm not devoted to God's word. Not really. I'm devoted to my own understanding, maybe. I'm devoted to my natural inclinations. I'm devoted to what makes me happiest. I'm I'm devoted to something. It's not God's word and believing God's word is right. So I must believe God's word is right, but also believe God's word is real. Not only do we believe it's right, but we must also believe it's real. I, I fear Many times we have a a mindset where we see God's word as the pie in the sky ideal, but not the reality of how things can be and should be. Again, take the idea of turning the other cheek. Well, yes, that would be right. And that's probably what's best. But it's just not realistic. We can't really do that. You can take that with any number of things, whether it be prayer, whether it be morality. I've heard that. In various ways from people who have professed faith in Jesus multiple times in my life. Yeah, yeah, I know it it would be best if we loved our enemies, but I just don't think that's realistic. People can't really do that. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it would be best if people were sexually pure until they were married. But I mean, come on, in the world we live in today, you can't expect people to really live like that. It's not realistic. And you can just take that with with anything. But what if, what if God's word is not the pie in the sky ideal? Yes, this is what's best, but it's not realistic. What if it's real? What if that really is how we're supposed to live? Whether it's on holiness, forgiveness, turning the other cheek, taking up our cross, loving others. What what if that really is how we're supposed to live? I think it is. I don't believe God's word is the pie in the sky ideal. Well, it would be wonderful. I believe it is real. This is what we're supposed to do. This is. If God's word has said it, then that is not only right, it is the real way we're supposed to live. And through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we can. Do we believe God's word is right and God's word is real? This is a profound question. These are profound questions and our answer, our real answer, will affect our ability to resist the pull of the woes of our day. If we do not believe God's word is right and we don't believe God's word is real, we will not stand on it and stand by it to say no to the culture's pull into these and many other sins. If God's word is not right and God's word is not real, then maybe get all you can is the right motto for life. If God's word is not right and God's word is not real, then maybe we should just live life as one big party and give ourselves to whatever sensual desires we want so long as we don't harm other people. If God's word is not right and real, then maybe slaves of sin aren't self-deceived after all. Maybe they're just living out their truth. If God's word is not right and God's word is not real, then maybe truth can be redefined. To whatever we want it to be for our time. If God's word is not right and God's word is not real, maybe we really are as smart as we think we are. If God's word is not right, God's word is not real, then, then maybe might does make right. And those with the most power should have the most stuff and control what happens. To be devoted to God's word, we must believe God's word. And believing God's word. We must believe it's right. We must believe it's real. And then we must devote ourselves to keeping God's word. The idea of keeping God's word or obeying God's word. In some cases, I've heard it thought of as as legalism. I talked to a guy once and that's what he said. I'm kind of legalistic by nature, so I think you ought to obey God's word. I said, well, obeying God's word isn't legalism. Legalism is doing a list of, of do's and don'ts in order to be right with God, in order to, to receive God's approval, in order to be saved, and to earn your own righteousness, essentially, is what legalism is. Legalism says, if I do this and I don't do that, I will be righteous and I will be saved by my, 
my rule keeping. That's contrary to what God's word actually says. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Right? Legalism is, is absolutely contrary to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Keeping God's word is not about doing certain things so I can be righteous. Keeping God's word is about doing what God says because I love him. That's essentially what it boils down to. Look, look at what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he will follow my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. The one who does not love me does not follow my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. Our desire to obey God's word is not born out of a desire to make ourselves righteous. It is born out of a desire to to demonstrate our love for Jesus. It is born out of the fact we love Jesus and we, we, we want to please Him. We want to do what He wants us to do because we love Him so much. And if we miss this, we miss, I don't know, I think almost everything what we're supposed to get out of our keeping of God's Word. I think even this, look, if they, if they love me, they will follow my word. My father will love him, will come to him, make our dwelling with him. There, there are experiences of God's presence we don't have apart from keeping his word. I want to keep God's word because I, I want Jesus with me. I want, I want to be with the Lord. Or in this one, who loves me will be loved by my father and will love him and reveal myself to him. There are, there are experiences of his love we will miss if we don't keep his word. Now, that doesn't mean, I'm not saying he loves us because we keep his word. That's not what it's saying. He's saying as we keep his word, we experience his love. We keep his word. We obey it not to earn his love. Not to be good enough. We do it because we love him. And we want to do what he wants us to do. If we read God's word looking for the rules we're supposed to follow, it becomes a book of burdens. And when you read God's word, clearly God does not intend for it to be that way. It's described as honey, sweeter than honey out of the comb, more precious than the finest gold. I've, I've had books of burdens, whether college or in the army. Trust me, they weren't sweeter than honey to my taste. They weren't more precious than gold. Right? What makes the difference between the book of rules and a book that's more precious than gold? I love. I, I love the Lord. And so I want to know Him better. I want to, to do more of what He would have me to do. I don't want to do anything that hinders my walk or my relationship with Him. We, we should not read God's Word looking for rules and regulations. But we should read God's Word looking for Jesus. And how we can draw closer to Him. This is the point. You examine the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very Scriptures that testify of me. And yet you're willing, you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. What the Scriptures testify of Jesus for what point to, to, to lead us to Him? And what makes the difference between a disciple of Jesus and a Pharisee? It's not that they knew the Bible better. Pharisees were very knowledgeable. What made the difference? Disciples of Jesus let their knowledge of the word push them to Jesus. And the Pharisees let their knowledge of the word keep them far away from Jesus. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I've been one. It's not in my my life path any longer. I hope I'm never that way. I want my time in the word to lead me closer to Jesus. It's going to. That's the point of it. And to be closer to Him is, again, it's going to lead me to, to obey Him, right? How can two walk together unless they're agreed? Jesus is going in one direction. I can't go the opposite direction and go with Him at the same time. So we keep God's Word because we love God. We love Jesus. Our devotion to God's Word should lead us to a deeper love and a greater devotion to Jesus. And that deeper love and greater devotion motivate us to 
to just keep God's word and do what he said. And, and listen, if, if our time in the word isn't drawing us deeper to Jesus, then we're doing it wrong. This, this is the point. This is what it's here for. And, and there's one more, and this isn't a point. I'm just going to say this quickly, and we'll close. Plead God's mercy on others. I, I feel confident those of us tonight are unlikely to be drawn into these woes to the point that the woes come upon us. Particularly because we, I believe if you're here on a Wednesday night, probably you're already devoted to God's Word. What you've heard tonight wasn't the first time and it's not something you're going, I've never thought that before. You're already devoted to God's Word. But we know people who aren't. We know people who are living in all six woes. They're living in all of those ways. And God's judgment is going to come upon them. And we, we must plead God's mercy for them as Moses pleaded for Israel. God spared them because of Moses' prayers. Never underestimate the power of our intercessory prayers on behalf of another. For God to spare them and give them another day, another chance, another opportunity. So for us, we respond by being devoted to God's word and then we plead for God's mercy for others. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your word which guides us. Draw us closer to you and give us a greater devotion to your word. And as we study the word, Father, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of the word. Make it precious to us, far more precious than it's ever been. Give us a greater hunger and a greater desire for your word. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to be closer to Jesus. Man, let our time in the word not make us proud and, and haughty in hearts that are hard towards others, but let our time in the word soften our hearts and make it more tender toward you and more tender toward people who are destroying their lives through sin. Let our time in the word draw us closer to Jesus so we can be more like Jesus. Friend of sinners, have your way in our hearts and lives, we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.